You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Please stand or remain standing for the reading of God's Word. My name is Liv, and I'll be reading from Matthew 17, 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, Not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Amen. All right, let's pray as we dig into this together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak to us through your word, and we know that this word uh, is one that you are wanting to speak to us through, so would you make us ready to receive what you have to say to us today, that we might not just receive it, but that we might be transformed by it, that this world might be one step closer to heaven as you bring your kingdom to this earth in us and through us. And that's a lot to ask, God. So we ask for your spirit to do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got a question just to get us chewing on this today. How much money do you have to pay in order to dwell with God? How much money, or how much money do you think you should have to pay? Maybe 50 bucks? 100 bucks, something like that. Um, I hear like three people laughing just a little bit, which is good. I, maybe the rest of y'all could laugh at that. I, it sounds a little ludicrous to us, hopefully, because the idea that we have to pay in order to dwell with God is just completely outlandish uh, in the way that we think about that kind of thing today. But in the time of Jesus, this was something that was actually a very literal question uh, for a Jew in his day. They were actually required to pay a tax every year in order to contribute to the maintenance of the temple. And the temple was where heaven comes to earth. The temple was where God meets with humanity, where he dwells with us. And so from a particular point of view, they had to pay to dwell with God. And I don't know that anyone really minded that all that much. They paying a tax, that the, the kind of tax that they were paying was a pretty small price, actually, for what you get in return when you think about it. You get atonement of sin. You get to know the living God and, and dwell in his presence. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And yet, through Jesus, something far greater than that was arriving. Through Jesus, we don't now have to go to a temple to meet with God. We 
Don't have to make animal sacrifices to atone for our sin. Hallelujah. Amen. Uh, through Jesus, humanity can meet with God anytime, anywhere. And in this story, Jesus tells Peter, he says, the sons are free. And in that statement, there's so much behind it that we're going to unpack. But what he's basically saying to Peter is the kingdom of heaven already belongs to us. So we don't need to pay our taxes, if you will, to the temple in order to dwell with God, which is incredible. Just think about this. God wants to bring us into a relationship with him, not as his subjects simply, subjects of his kingdom, but really as his sons. God wants us to freely dwell with him through the person of Jesus Christ. It's incredible news, and we're going to dig into it by looking at this story. So first, let's look at what this tax was. What was it all about? Verse 24 in the beginning of 25. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. So this is a little bit of a weird translation, the, the way that this interaction's happening. It's a little confusing, but they're basically saying, doesn't Jesus pay the tax, or does he pay the tax? And Peter's saying, yeah, of course he does. But what was the tax? Again, it was this temple tax. It's called the two drachma tax, because that's the amount uh, that was given, and it was taken annually for anyone who was Jewish over the age of 20. They were supposed to give... Uh, this two drachma to support the tabernacle. And then later, once the temple was built, they were supposed to support that. And so uh, these aren't the typical tax collectors that we're used to hearing about. If you've been around for any of this sermon series, you've heard about the tax collectors. Those guys are kind of nefarious, kind of uh, the, the bad guys, so to speak, that we often hear about. But the, these guys are, are Jews. They're not collecting taxes for the Romans they're faithful in some sense to uh, the God of Israel. They're patriotic. They, they want to support their temple and their worship, which means their question was probably a test. And, and so maybe their intentions weren't so good, and we're going to find out more about that in a minute. Uh, but back in chapter 12... Jesus had made this audacious claim. This is why these guys are probably testing him. Jesus made this audacious claim. Here's what he said. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, which was like basically waging war on Judaism at that point. Nobody could have fathomed of anything that was greater than the temple. Like we said, you get to get your sins atoned for, you get to make sacrifices to God, you get to meet with God, you get to know the living God. How could anything better than the temple ever be here? And so these tax collectors, they hear this message that Jesus has given, that something greater than the temple is here, and they want to find out, is he actually a supporter of the temple, or is he trying to tear this thing down, the temple in Jerusalem? And so we might ask the question then, if, if this is what this tax is, why does Jesus say that he and Peter are not required to pay it. Because they are over the age of 20, right? They are Jews, so let's find out. Verses 25 and 26. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, that's to Peter first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? 
from their sons or from others. A lot of translations will say things like from sons or from strangers. From sons or from strangers. I like that language. I'm probably going to use that a lot. From sons or from strangers. And when he said to him, uh, and, and when he said from others or from strangers, Jesus said to Peter, then the sons are free. So why is it that Peter and Jesus are exempt from having to pay this tax? It's because they are sons of God, is what Jesus says. And then therefore, God doesn't charge his sons rent, if you will, okay? And so imagine God as a king, and imagine the temple service or running the temple as his kingdom. And in that analogy, the taxes are what allow his kingdom to then operate. And Jesus is going, what king forces his sons to pay to be a part of his kingdom? He says, no ruler taxes his own family. And why is that? Because the kingdom already belongs to them. They're free. They're free. Whereas strangers are not free. Strangers are on the hook for paying that tax. And and likewise, Jesus is saying, he is God's son, He is tax-exempt. He's free. But here's the crazy part. Here's the part that should shock us. This This would have been shocking for Peter to hear. Jesus says Peter is God's son. Jesus says Peter is a son. This would be like, to a Jew in that day, it's just like, what? Are you serious? That's incredible. So it's not just about, what Jesus is saying to Peter is not just about Jesus being the eternal son of God that pre-existed all of creation. He is that. But what he's talking about here is something different. He's saying all people like Peter, and now all Christians who have followed in his footsteps, are brought into this incredible, privileged status of sonship. And we're going to look more at that in just a minute. But first, kind of got to go, well, okay, but why does Jesus pay this thing anyway? If he's saying he's exempt, why does he go back and go, well, yeah, I'll, I'll pay it. Let's find out. However, not to give offense to them, Jesus is talking to Peter, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Kind of weird, huh? Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. A shekel was four drachmas, so it was enough to pay for both Jesus and Peter's taxes. And what we kind of see here, but we're not going to dig deeply into, is an example of what Pastor David was talking about earlier when he's talking about giving to God, right? He's talking about how everything belongs to God. And we can see here in this little anecdotal story that not only does everything belong to God, but that God always provides. He always makes a way, even if it's some miraculous, perhaps bizarre kind of way of providing in this case. Uh, And yet, that's not why Jesus pays. It's not that Jesus is going, oh, it's not going to cost me anything, just go catch a fish. That's not why he's paying this, despite the fact that he says he's exempt. Jesus is paying this tax for the sake of his mission. Because remember, Jesus says, I'm free. I'm a son. I've already got the kingdom. I don't have to pay taxes to be a part of it. 
but he doesn't want to put an obstacle in the way of his message, in the way of his mission. And here's, here's what I mean. There's some bad stuff going down at the temple. Surely some of these guys who were collecting taxes for the temple tax were probably some they had good intentions. But the people who were responsible for taking care of the temple had hearts that had grown all twisted up. They, they cared more about bolstering their building than they did worshiping the God who it was built for. Very sad. And this makes Jesus very, very angry, as you can well imagine. And you might be familiar with that story that takes place on Palm Sunday. It's actually just a little ways down the road in Matthew's gospel here. In Matthew 10, 21, uh, Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem. What does he do? He turns over the tables, it says, of the money changers. And what does he, what does he say? He accuses them of this really high crime. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the tables that Jesus turns over there are the tables that would be set up during the Passover festival in Jerusalem in order to collect payments for this exact temple tax, okay? So that is what's going on. Jesus is anticipating that event, but he hasn't gotten there yet. Jesus hasn't gotten to Jerusalem. That was at least, uh, scholars are divided on this, at least a few weeks away, maybe a few months away. And so imagine Jesus, he's very far away from there in time and in place, and, and he's in this small town in Galilee. And, and before he arrives in Jerusalem, he refuses to pay this tax to these guys, and he calls them the same kinds of names, like you collectors of the temple tax or a bunch of greedy robbers. So imagine that he does that in this kind of nowhere place, and then maybe you know, someone opens an investigation on him, right? And what would they find? They would find that Jesus didn't pay his taxes. That doesn't look good, right? And, and then when he gets to Jerusalem, they could suggest that Jesus' motives for calling them out were a little twisted himself, that they could say that he was doing that for his own self-interest. It would be a scandal, and it could actually sidetrack uh, what Jesus' purpose was in going to Jerusalem to begin with, to go and get crucified for the sins of humanity and rise from death and so that he could save us. And so that's why Jesus says, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to offend them. That might have, you might have read that and been like, that's a little bit weird for Jesus to say because I think we all know Jesus is not afraid to ruffle people's feathers or challenge the status quo, amen? He's constantly doing that. You can't read the Gospels without seeing Jesus offend people all the time. I kind of love that about Jesus, actually. So don't think of him as this softy pushover, but rather Jesus didn't want to give offense merely to give offense, because that's all it would have done. It would have done no good. See, Jesus is always offensive on purpose, okay? That's how I want you to look at it. Jesus is always offensive on purpose. And so as we're looking at this story and we're kind of unpacking all this stuff with this tax and everything, you might be thinking to yourself, this could have no less relevance to my life than anything that we've read in Matthew's gospel so far. And to be honest, friends, when I was looking at this this last week, as I first started looking at it, I'm just like, how 
How? How am I going to preach this? What relevance does this have in my life? And it all became much clearer as I dug more deeply into this statement that Jesus makes. And I want you to see this because this has monumental impact in our lives. How does this apply? The first thing I want to look at. We are sons. We are sons. And it may be surprising to find that in the middle of this bizarre story that, you know, that, that there's some kind of deep and foundational identity meaning that we can find here, but it's here. And, and perhaps within this strange and brief story, we can learn something profound about who we are as Christians and what that means for our lives. Because Jesus here, he includes Peter, as we said, as a son of the kingdom. And later on, as you keep reading the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul applying this sonship to all believers, all of us as Christians. And before I dig into that, if you're female here, you might be going, hey, what's up with all this patriarchy, y'all? Like, what, does this apply to us too as, as females? And the answer is most definitely, absolutely. We're actually told in many places in Scripture, no matter whether we're male or female, as Christians we are called the children of God, right? And, and sons and daughters, right? And, and there's something amazing about just knowing that in, in a general sense, but there's also something important to note about adoption as sons that you might miss if you're always focused on gender-specific language. And by the way, I'm taking most of this from Nijay Gupta in his treatment on uh, adoption in Galatians, and here's what he says, okay? He says, adoption in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, Jesus' world, it was very, very different from how we view adoption in the modern West. It's not that one was right or one is wrong or anything like that. It's just that they're not the same. And so we need to kind of travel back in time a little bit to understand what it means that we are sons. So for example, what's the purpose of adoption in our world? The purpose of adoption, I think all of us would probably agree, is helping the vulnerable, right? Some of you guys were adopted. Some of you have adopted children. And it's this amazing gift to be able to help someone who is in a vulnerable position, usually an orphan, right? Or maybe you're in a family that you're unable to have biological children, and adoption is a, is a pathway to having children and raising children, adding someone to your family. So what do people do? They tend to adopt children who are needy, who are orphans, uh, and, and people who they want to add to their family to grow and increase their family. And they, they tend to adopt, in our day and age anyway, a disproportionate amount of females than they do males. That's just statistically how this works. And also, in addition to that, people tend to adopt as many children as they want or are able to not usually limiting it. And so that is so different from adoption in the Greco-Roman world. These two could not be almost any different. First difference is that it wasn't typically a child. 
I know that sounds totally weird to us, but can you imagine adopting a grown person, an adult? That's the way that it worked most often. Doesn't that sound weird? And, and not only that, but it was typically an adult male. Almost never was it a female. And that was partly because it was a patriarchal society, but it was also because their adoption served an entirely different purpose. It wasn't about showing compassion. It wasn't about adding a member to your family. Adoption was specifically done when someone needed an heir to their family estate and to their family's gods. That was the point. And so they would often adopt these adult males, those also who were generally, from a social perspective, considered pretty great people or important people. In fact, if you look through like Greco-Roman history, a lot of the emperors were adopted, which is crazy to us. And in addition to that, adopting someone was very, very expensive. You had to typically pay off the whole family's debt. And so with all of this in mind, you wouldn't adopt as many people as possible. You would only adopt one person because you only need one heir to your estate. And here's why this matters, friends. This is how this is relevant for our lives. In the same way that these men were given the place of the greatest honor as heirs to another family's estate... Friends, we have been given the place of the greatest honor as heirs to another family's estate. Amen? We have been given God's kingdom. What's his kingdom? It's all of the world. We have been absorbed into the sonship of Jesus Christ. He's the true son. He's the true heir. He's the one and only. But Though he's the rightful one to inherit God's estate, he shares his inheritance with all of us. He shares his status with all of us. He shares his obligations, his rights, his privileges as the son, as the heir with all of us as Christians. And so, friend, if you are a Christian, whether you're male or female, you are a son you are an heir, which Galatians 4, 6 through 7 says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying Abba, that means father. It's not the Swedish disco band, no. It means father. Crying Abba, father, so you are no longer a slave. You are a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Christian, you are no longer a slave to the ways of this world, no longer a slave to the ways of the flesh, the ways of the devil. We are no longer strangers to God. We can cry to him, Abba, Father, because we are in Christ. We are sons. And if we only understood how monumental this was, we would truly live free. Because that's what Jesus says. He says, then the sons are free. And that's the second way that this applies to our life. It's not just to our identity, but it's how that identity flows out into our everyday lives. We live free. That's what it means to live as a son. But what do we mean when we say live free? I want to highlight two things that this means, okay? First thing, living free means we're all paid up. 
We're all paid up. Our adoption was unearned. We didn't earn it, right? Jesus paid our family's debt. He earned it for us. And so we have nothing left to pay back. The kingdom already belongs to us. We don't have to pay God rent, if you will, right, to be a part of it. We don't have to pay taxes to stay in the family or have the privilege of entering into the presence of God. Bringing it back to what David was talking about earlier with giving of our finances to the church, we don't have to give our finances to the church as an obligation. I hope you know that. <laughs> if you're a Christian, I hope you know that God does not command us to give to him as an obligation, but rather he invites us to give to him as an act of worship. It's voluntary, it's sacrificial, it's cheerful, the Bible says. And so we give out of God's generosity to us. God is not the cosmic IRS that's coming after us, amen? He's, do you see him that way? I hope you don't. He's not, you know, treating you, Christian, like a stranger in his kingdom, like a tax collector that he's coming to empty your pockets of everything you've got left. Friend, how would you know that you are living as though you're a stranger, as though you're living not free? It would be if you were maybe, say, practicing spiritual disciplines like Bible reading or prayer or fellowship or giving from a place of transaction rather than from a place of relationship. You trying to pay your taxes to God so that he has to bless you, so that you won't get in trouble, so he won't punish you, so that he won't let you suffer? Or friend, do you approach him as an heir? Do you approach him how Jesus would approach him? Because that's what he's inviting you into. Do you approach him as a son, standing before the living, all-powerful God with confidence, with privilege, all that he has freely placed on you because of Jesus? Do you live free? The other thing that living free means, I think, especially in light of this story about the temple, is living free means freely worshiping. Do you worship freely, friends? The temple tax is over. We don't got to keep up a building. You know, we don't, we don't got to keep the building tidy, although it's nice to keep this building tidy, right? But we don't have to keep it tidy. We don't have to slaughter animals to atone for our sins. We don't have to make offerings and sacrifices in order to get to God's presence. Instead, God is present with us at all times, in all places. Through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his giving us of his spirit, we get to be living our lives as a sacrifice every moment of every day, offered up to him as worship. This is incredible. So this means I can worship God through how I do my job every day, living sacrifice, living free. I can worship God through how I work in my retirement if, if I'm not working a regular job. 
Every moment, every day. I can worship God through how I relate to my friends and my neighbors and my family members. Worship Him every moment, every day. I can worship God how I, with how I steward the gifts that He has given to me. The time, the treasure, the talents that He has provided for me. I can live this life before God. All as an act of worship, all lived with him, with us. Can you believe this? Yeah, good, good. <laughs> I hope so. Because you know what? I think sadly, oftentimes we don't believe it. We don't live as though this is true. Oftentimes we settle for just being accepted by God, which is incredible. We're like, great, I'm, I'm a son, this is awesome. And then it's like, that's enough, God, thank you, thank you very much, I'm busy now, and I've got all this stuff going on. I don't really necessarily have time to, to be with you right now, God, okay? So I'm just going to go ahead and live this life over here. Thanks for making me one of your sons. But friends, you have access to God. You're never too busy to accept that. Don't neglect to enjoy the ongoing benefits of being his sons. Some of you know uh, Barney and Barb. They're members here at Trinity. They lead a community group and a leadership huddle. Uh, Barney and Barb are just amazing brothers, brother and sister in this church family. And what you might not know about them is that they also help people with their financial coaching. Hey, Barney. There he is. And I was talking with Barney about this text this week, and he was telling me that when they give financial coaching to people, one of the most common problems that they find is that people don't take advantage of the benefits that are available to them through their employer. So maybe they have this health care available, but they just don't sign up for it. Or they have retirement matching and they don't pay into it, which by the way, as a total side note, has nothing to do with this message. You should do that. <laughs> it's free money. Just take it. It's a good, good idea. But, but what he says is that people, as they're meeting with them, people are constantly leaving their benefits on the table rather than picking them up and, and taking advantage of them, enjoying them. And friends, that's a problem with our finances. That's, like I said, don't do that. You don't want to do that. But that's an even bigger problem when it comes to our relationship with God. Are you settling for being accepted when you could also have God every hour, every day? He wants us to know his presence. He wants us to enjoy the benefits, the ongoing benefits of being his sons. That's why Jesus said, friends, that something greater than the temple is here because place was giving way to person. Sons, we are free because we get to enjoy this brand new reality that the temple in Jerusalem is over and the age of coming to God through Jesus is here. Amen. So don't keep trying to pay your temple tax, whatever that might be. Live free as sons. Let's pray. 
God, as I'm just meditating on this right in this moment, I, I, I wonder if maybe sometimes we want to keep paying our temple tax because we want to show you our gratitude. If that's in someone's heart, would you just change that just a little so that we're able to worship you freely without feeling like we have to give, like we're obliged to give? Would you, God, dwell with us every moment of every day? Help us to recognize your presence. Help us to live living sacrifices of worship to you as your beloved sons. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us in making us heirs to the kingdom of God. Help us to enjoy the realities of that today and every day. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.